It's an honor to bring the Lord's Word to you today. Let me start by asking a question. What is the hardest thing that you have ever suffered? Uh, a death in the family? A crippling illness or injury? Uh, depression or mental illness? A broken relationship? A bout of unemployment? Poverty? Maybe for some of us, the past 18 months of pandemic has been one of the hardest trials of your life. Uh, some of us have felt a profound fear of going out and a profound isolation from staying in. Perhaps for some of us, the hardest thing is disappointed hopes. Uh, past suffering is over and done, and perhaps that pain fades with time, but the idea that we have nothing to look forward to in the future, that none of our dreams might come true, can feel inescapable, never-ending, and suffocating. As important as what you suffer is how you suffer. What do we do when we suffer? Do we lash out in anger and bitterness? Do we shut down in sorrow, in melancholy, in hopelessness? Do we wallow in self-pity? Do we internalize it, grow stoic and don't talk about it, to act strong and not impose our hardship on other people? Well, the Psalms have a lot to say about suffering. Or rather, David and the other psalmists suffered a lot and wrote psalms in the midst of their suffering. And in these psalms, and today we'll look at Psalm 13, we see a model for how to suffer in the presence of God. We see that God does not give us um, an easy or pat answer for all of our suffering. There's no simplistic proof text for the problem of evil. But he does teach us how to suffer well. He shows us that we can bring our complaints to him. We can ask boldly of him. And we express our trust in him. And he shows us that he is not unfamiliar with our suffering. And he's not scared of our suffering. First, let's think briefly about the author of this psalm, about King David. Uh, this is a psalm of David, so let's recall briefly some of the things that David suffered, which might give us some entry points to empathize with the suffering uh, and understand what he's going through. David suffered a lot. Uh, David was a soldier. He served in the military. He led men in combat. He lost friends to war. Uh, his best friend Jonathan was killed in battle against the Philistines when David was maybe in his early 30s. Um, some of us here in the congregation, including myself, um, have served in the military or have had friends or family who have served. And those who serve in wartime, I think, know a certain kind of mental strain, a kind of uh, a burden, a knowledge that lives depend upon your decisions, violence hovers over your life every hour, uh, your own death may come soon at any moment. You want your fight to be for a good cause, but even if you succeed, you know that it still means death, disability to the other side, widows and orphans to other families. Some know the trauma of profound physical violence. Um, and so I think some of what we see in these Psalms of David might be what today we call PTSD. David was a combat veteran. David continued to suffer throughout his life. He was anointed king, but had to wait decades to take his rightful place because of Saul. 
He endured Saul's jealousy. He fled Saul's attempt to murder him. And so you could say David suffered professional disappointment, delayed aspirations, the unjust denial of his rights. Probably most of us can't empathize with this specific trial unless you're the secret successor of some throne or other. Um, but I think most of us can identify with this idea of frustrated ambitions, delayed dreams, or being treated unjustly by those in power. David suffered even more. His firstborn son died in childbirth. Another son later in life, Amnon, raped his sister, David's daughter, Tamar. And yet another son, Absalom, then murdered the first son, fled to exile, then returned and raised a rebellion against David, uh, tried to usurp his throne, denigrate his name, and take his life. And David was forced to flee, uh, flee the city of Jerusalem. And we read in 2 Samuel 15, uh, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered. While David fled, a heckler followed him. And the heckler cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And so on top of the pain of being betrayed by his own son, David was publicly humiliated. And finally, David was forced to send an army to fight against his son. His son Absalom was killed. David wept for his dead son and then was rebuked for his ingratitude towards his soldiers for winning the victory. And so David was forced to preside over a victory celebration instead of mourn his dead son. That is a lot of suffering for one life. How does David bring this suffering before the Lord? David's prayer in Psalm 13 teaches us how to lament before the Lord. How does David describe his complaint? First, we see that he brings his complaint to the Lord. He does not hide his feelings. He prays with raw honesty and emotional vulnerability. He complains about three things, about what, how he feels about God and what God is doing, he complains about his own heart and how his despair, his hopelessness, and he complains about his external circumstances. And then he asks boldly of God for vindication, for protection, for defense. And finally, he expresses trust in God's faithfulness. As we read in chapter, in verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David begins his complaint by describing how he feels about God, which is perhaps the most fundamental layer of sorrow. What does it mean for God to hide his face? Well, I think we all want to be seen and known by God. If we feel that God has turned his face away, it means that we feel that God has del is deliberately choosing not to look at us, to ignore us, to overlook us. Perhaps we feel that God is embarrassed by us, ashamed of us, disgusted with us. We are unworthy of his gaze. Maybe we feel that God is simply indifferent. He's too big, we're too small, and unimportant. Recall Moses' famous blessing in number six. He says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. 
The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God shines his face in blessing, and it feels as if he hides his face when we suffer. Next, David is honest about his own heart. He, he starts with a, essentially an accusation against God, and then he opens up his, his heart to the Lord. This is the part of the psalm that, uh, by the way, has the most variety in different translations, and I think that variety gives us some, some hint as to its color. The ESV says, verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? The CSB says, How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? The NISB, how long am I to feel anxious in my soul with grief in my heart all the day? Or the message, I've carried this ton of trouble. I've lived with a stomach full of pain. Um, How many of us have not felt like this at some point or other in our lives? I think all of us have had Something like this, a a dark night of the soul, if you will. A time that feels like like utter blackness, a time of hopelessness and despair. A time when you feared that the darkness will surely cover you. I've had a few. Uh, My parents divorced when I was very young, when I struggled with depression, when I have faced uh, the reality that I might not come home from my military deployment, when my wife and I struggled with infertility, Um, when my vocational dreams did not come true on my timeline, um, and during a protracted season when I didn't know if I'd be able to provide for my own family. But honestly, some of the hardest times for me have not been tied to a specific misfortune. It's just uh, they've come when I've started to doubt the value of life, when I had an acute sense that none of this matters, everything is meaningless, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I think this is a good description of anxiety, depression, whether of the kind that could be formally diagnosed as a mental illness or not. I think many of us have experienced something like this, a kind of a mix of worry and fear and fretfulness and hopelessness all mixed together about the future that you can't escape. And people sometimes say, oh, just relax, it'll be okay. And you just want to lash out and say, how can I relax when this is happening to me? How can I relax when the world is this broken? These feelings don't seem to be a choice. They simply happen to us, and we can't stop thinking about them or about the thing that is broken in the world. We store up anxious concerns. We feel anxious in our souls. We have agony in our minds and carry a stomach full of pain day after day. How long, O Lord? Bring these complaints to the Lord, as David did. Don't don't hide, don't pretend that everything's okay. David didn't hide these emotions. And if I can speak just to the men for a moment, stereotypically, look, David was a manly man, and yet he expressed these emotions very freely. Be honest, even if it feels a little sacrilegious. David is saying, God is ignoring me, Of course that's not true. We all know doctrinally that's not true. David knows that's not true. He's the author of Psalm 139. You've made me and known me, right? He knows the truth of God's omniscience. So he's not denying the doctrine that God does in fact know him, but he is sharing how he actually feels. And let's be honest, sometimes we do not feel the truth of the doctrines that we know. And it's okay to admit that to God and to each other. 
Finally, David turns his complaint to his circumstances, first to God, then his heart, then to his circumstances, the world. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And as we looked at David's biography, we saw he had plenty of enemies. Perhaps we may try to spiritualize this and think about the enemies of sin, temptation, and the devil. It's a fine interpretation. I, I don't think that's what David meant in this passage. David had literal human enemies who wanted to hunt him down and murder him in cold blood. Um, human enemies who wanted to steal his crown, uh, his throne, his palace, all his worldly possessions, and his good name. You know, human enemies who literally raised entire armies to try to kill him. Um, I think it's good and healthy for us to recognize that even we have enemies. Perhaps not that are raising armies against us, but we do have enemies. Um, rather than pretend we're sort of beyond that. I know this is true, uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of this present darkness, as Paul says in Ephesians. But Paul's point in that passage is not to deny that we have enemies, but rather to expose the underlying satanic forces beneath uh, anti-Christian persecution, which is a whole separate conversation. I think chances are, all of us have people in our lives that really feel like our enemies. Maybe a workplace rival, somebody who maybe cheats a little bit at work at your expense. Maybe it's somebody who gossips about you or slanders your good name. Uh, maybe it's a family member whose relationship is a burden to you every single day. We can also recognize that the church very clearly has enemies, people who hate the gospel and want to do us harm because of what we believe and who we are. That's certainly true around the world, as Christians and much of the rest of the world face physical violence and harassment for being Christians. And of course we can recognize here, even in suburban Northern Virginia, that there are people who would do us bodily harm if they could, whether it's terrorists or tyrants. Some of you remember being in the Pentagon or the Capitol uh, building 20 years ago. These are all kinds of very real enmity that we face. We should lift these up to God and ask for God's vindication, ask for his protection, ask for his relief. And it is right to ask for our enemy's defeat. So David's psalm is first a list of complaints. Complaints about God, about David's own heart, and about the world, his circumstances. What should we make of this? We're told, obviously, elsewhere in Scripture not to grumble, not to complain, uh, not to be sort of a, a cause of division or strife. That's all true. But I think we should take comfort here that God is not afraid of our feelings. He is not offended by them. He isn't surprised by them. God, our Heavenly Father, is intimately aware of what it feels like to suffer in this life. I think God wants us to bring our suffering before him. He's the one who ordained that this psalm be in the Bible, that we might also pray with David, how long, O Lord? He doesn't want us to hide our suffering or hide how we feel. He is, he is honored by our emotional honesty before him, and we grow closer to him through such vulnerability. Parents, think about your children. Uh, when your kids are going through a hard time, maybe at school or in friendships, what do we always tell them? We say, come talk to us. Tell us what's going on. 
It's, it's not so much that we want to solve all our kids' problems for them. They, they, they need to grow up and learn how to solve their problems. Um, but we just want to be part of their lives. We want to know them. If they're going through a hard time, we want to cry with them, to bear each other's burdens and sorrows, as our church covenant says. So bring your trials, your hardships, your feelings before the Lord. But David's psalm here is not just a list of complaints. The second thing that David does is boldly ask the Lord for good things. He asks of the Lord. He brings to the Lord his petitions. He first complains, then he asks. He asks of the Lord. Verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Note here that David's request parallels his complaints. Um, He had complained, first of God, then of self, then of the world. Similarly here, he first asks that God consider and answer me, instead of forgetting him, turning his face away. Then he asks of God to light up my eyes, instead of letting him have sorrow in my heart all the day. Then he asks God uh, to save him, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. So again, his requests perfectly parallel his complaints. He is asking for comprehensive salvation. He wants salvation from everything he complained about. He laid before the Lord a long list of complaints. And then he says, Lord, save me from it all. Please save me from it all. There's a show that some of you have heard of called The Chosen. Um, Great show. It's an imagined, fictionalized account mostly of the disciples' lives. Uh, and, and, and Jesus is in the show as a kind of a, almost like a side character. It focuses on the disciples and a lot of the squabbling back and forth. Um, in the show, the, uh, the, the apostle Nathaniel is imagined to be an architect whose latest project literally collapses, falls apart. His building falls apart. And so he loses his job. He loses his reputation. He'll never work again. And he sits under a tree, weeping, and he holds up his, his architectural drawings, his designs. He holds them up and he prays. And he says, this, this was done for you. And he starts to pray Psalm 102. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me. And he repeats, this was done for you. Do not hide your face from me. Do you see me? We long to be seen by God. So ask him. It is good to ask God for good things. God isn't offended by our asking. It's good to ask God to pay attention, to tell him our desire for his face. Again, parents think of our kids. Kids have no problem asking for our attention all the time. Daddy, watch this. Daddy, look at me. Kids love to live their lives in front of our eyes. It means so much to them for us to bear witness uh, to their lives um, of joy, their growing up, their play. And I think God has actually designed all of us to ask in his loving gaze. You might devote your life, your labor, your work, your play, your relationships, parenting, marriage, everything to him. Ask God to refresh your heart, to light up your eyes. I confess, the older I get, the harder I find it to Receive this kind of refreshment. 
harder for me to feel refreshed. I think often we feel weighed down by future cares, present responsibilities, perhaps some past regrets, and that burden seems to grow heavier as the years go by. We feel burdened by those we are responsible for. And so bring that to the Lord as well. Bring your cares to him. Finally, after David's complaint, note how he finishes the psalm. David expresses trust. He reminds himself of the truth, verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, I want to be clear what, what this isn't, what I, what I think it is not. Um, sometimes I think we tell each other that if only we understood correct theology, um, we would never feel bad. Um, if you do feel bad, if you feel angry or sad or depressed or lonely, that right there is taken as evidence that we somehow don't actually understand our theology right. Um, in this view, our feelings follow our theology. Get the theology correct, and your, your, your emotional state is fine. Um, so I'm actually not convinced that this is an accurate reflection of human psychology. I don't think it's true. I think that you can believe correct things and still have hardship in life. You can believe correct things and still have a, a dark night of the soul. You can still have doubts. You can still struggle with anxiety, depression, and loneliness. But note what David says when he expresses this trust in the Lord. He isn't just repeat, reciting propositions. He's not reading from a theology textbook. He sings. He promises to rejoice in God's salvation. Have you ever tried to sing in the midst of depression? Um, it's pretty hard to fake it. Right? Singing is inherently emotional. When we engage our bodies, our voices, singing God's praises, um, I think it does begin to change things in us. By doing so, David is choosing to bring his emotions into the expression of trust, into the repetition of truth, so that it's not just a rote repetition of dogma. Now, I'm not, singing this, I'm not saying that singing is the cure for all depression and despair, but I am saying that, um, uh, that uh, in choosing to engage your emotions in, the, in expression of trust, it's a way of giving it all to the Lord, of kind of laying yourself out there in trust and faith and saying, Lord, here I am, here's my heart, uh, refresh my heart, give light to my eyes. This is a way of trying to rejoice in his salvation so that it isn't just a rote and shallow recitation. I want to note two other things about this expression of trust. One, note, uh, before I've noted the, the sort of progression of David's complaint from God to self to the world, and then the same progression in his request from God to self to the world. Here, when we get to David's expression of trust, we see only a partial parallel he goes from God to the self, but not to the world. David declares that he has trusted in God. He affirms God's character. He pledges something about himself to sing God's praises, to rejoice in his salvation. But David does not declare that his enemies have been defeated. He does not assert that the victory has been won. He doesn't assume that God will fix his circumstances. We can pray for different circumstances, we can pray for deliverance from whatever is afflicting us, from whatever hardship we struggle with. But sometimes God's salvation looks different. Sometimes God saves us in a way that we don't expect. And so it's good that David, I think, uh, reflects that by 
trusting that God will save him even if it looks different than what David expects. Second thing to note here, notice the verb tenses. David says, I have trusted in the past. I shall rejoice. I will sing in the future because God has dealt bountifully again in the past. David is declaring as an accomplished fact God's benevolence to him and he's pledging his ongoing trust in God because of his confidence of God's accomplished faithfulness. And this accomplished faithfulness is true no matter how David feels about it. God's faithfulness doesn't depend upon your feelings. God is still faithful even if you feel lonely, angry, depressed, sad. God is still faithful. I think David is both reminding himself of God's past acts of faithfulness, which is true, but he's also declaring that God is again going to continue being faithful because David is so confident in God's faithfulness as to declare it an accomplished past fact. Remember, our God is outside of time. His faithfulness to us is not a future possibility. It is an eternal reality. And we can affirm it and assert it and preach it and sing it to ourselves and to each other no matter what we're going through. So in conclusion, why lament? Why should we lament before God? I think that we should lament because life is hard. Because suffering is a part of life in this fallen world. Anybody here never suffered? Right, none of us. We've all suffered. And so if we are to live our full lives before God's face, then lamenting the hard parts is simply a matter of honesty. Bringing the hard parts of life to God in prayer is just a matter of honesty. If you go before God only in your Sunday best, um, all respectable, dressed up in spiffy, um, there's a part of your life that you're hiding from him, the part that is wounded and suffering and hurting. God wants that part too. Some years ago, one of my daughters asked for a pet hedgehog. And being a very practical dad, of course I said no. She proceeded to ask every single day for the next six months. Uh, remembering, remembering the uh, parable of the persistent widow, I relented, we got a pet hedgehog. And we delighted in that brand new, tiny, adorable, weird little life for three weeks, and then it died. My daughter, she cried and cried, and I could do nothing but cry with her. And that shared suffering has been a cornerstone of our relationship ever since. When we lament, we share our suffering with God. We memorialize the story that God has given us to live. How many times does God say in his word for us to remember, to remember his faithfulness? How can we remember his faithfulness unless we remember what he has delivered us from? The hardships, the suffering, the trials. We must remember those trials to remember God's faithfulness to us. Uh, remember the hard things that brought us to an awareness of our need for him in the first place. Lament is a way of recalling our suffering and God's faithfulness. C.S. Lewis famously said that pain is God's megaphone for arousing a deaf world. Lament is being awake before God's face. Being aware of the fallenness and brokenness of this world and our need for him. 
And so lament is a way of rehearsing hope to remind ourselves of God's past faithfulness and the certainty of his future faithfulness. Lament is a way of praising God amidst our hardships, as we read in Lamentations 3 this morning. Lament is also an occasion to confess our sin if and when our sin is the source of our suffering. Lament is a way of growing our empathy for others as they suffer hardships. I remember earlier in my life feeling really awkward and uncomfortable when other people shared about their hardships. But now, I just hug them, I tell them I'm sorry, and we share our stories together. That shared suffering is one of the bonds of fellowship that ought to bind us together as a body. And finally, lament is a way of coming to know our Savior better. Jesus was called the man of sorrows. Why? Because he was the only sane man in an insane world. He knew more than anyone about the brokenness of the world, the damage caused by sin, and he knew his mission, what he had to endure for the penalty for our sins through his death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus fell on his knees, sweat drops of blood, pled for the Father's mercy. He was betrayed by his friends, arrested on bogus charges, brutally tortured, and murdered. When he hung on the cross, he prayed another psalm of lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus can pray that prayer, so can we. God is not unacquainted with suffering. He knows what it means, what it feels like to endure the hardships of life. As we pray, how long, O Lord? How long will you forget me? We might call to mind and remember our Savior and his patience with the suffering that our sins put on him. And we might remember God's faithfulness, his faithfulness to Jesus. As he gave Jesus new life, so too will he be faithful to us found in him, kind to relieve our suffering, to give us himself, to make our hearts ready to sing his praises and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you tell us in your word to rejoice in trials of all kinds. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the hardships that you've ordained for us. It is hard. Thank you for showing us your face. Please continue to see us. Help us to be honest before you about how we feel. Spare us the hardships, vindicate us and protect us. But Lord, we pray above all, be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.